The text for our sermon this morning is Job 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 3, 14 through 16, and 20. And I'd recommend, if you have time today, read the whole chapter. It's beautiful. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for the children's sermon. Well, in the Bible verses that we just read, we find the answer to the world's biggest question. And that question is, how can a person be right before God? Now, Job tells us some important things in these verses. First, he tells us that he's a sinner. He says that even if he claimed to be good, his own life, his own mouth would prove him wrong. Job tells us that if God sat us down and started picking through our lives, we wouldn't be able to answer him about anything. God sees all and God knows all. Now, as you keep that in mind, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that you decided to make two boats. So you find just the right size pieces of wood and you cut them and you carve them until they look exactly like you want them to. You paint one blue, you paint the other one red. Now, did either boat do something that made you decide to paint them those colors? No, of course not, right? And then you decide that the blue boat will be your toy for the bathtub. The red one you'll put outside, float it in the dugout or something. Now, did either boat do anything to make you choose which one to go in the house and which one to go outside? No, of course not. But imagine if those little boats had minds and mouths, and the blue one says, well, he made me his bathtub toy because I'm blue, and he likes blue better than red. What would you think? Well, you might think, well, you know, even if that was true, I'm still the one who painted you blue. Do you understand what I mean? The blue boat didn't make itself. It didn't paint itself blue. It didn't make you like it more. All those things were your decisions. You did them because you wanted to, not because the boats did something for you. Now, what does that have to do with the world's biggest question? How can I be right before God? What we learned in our Bible verses today, which is taught everywhere else in the Bible, is that being right with God is not something that we do ourselves for God. We cannot do anything to make Him decide, I'll call her my child. I'll make him righteous. This is exactly, of course, the opposite of how we think. Because we think, well, i got to go do a bunch of stuff that will make God like me, and then he'll call me his child. But it isn't like that at all. It's just like that blue boat. You keep that one in the house. It's your special bath time boat. But it didn't make itself that way. It didn't paint itself blue so that you'd choose it over the red one. You gave it its shape and color. It was you that found those ugly old pieces of wood, and it's you that cleaned it up and gave it its pretty shape and color, and you made it the color that you wanted. All of those things that, that make that boat good were your gifts to it, not its gifts to you. 
Being right in the sight of God is the same way. Everything that makes us pleasing to God is His gift to us, not our gift to Him. And the Bible tells us that the only way that we can receive these gifts is by faith. Well, what is faith? Faith means believing that only God makes us His children. Only God makes us righteous. Faith means trusting in Jesus, not in oneself. And the amazing thing about it is that even faith is one of God's good gifts. It's like if you made a little sail for your boat so you could, it would go the direction you wanted. So when you blew into the sail, it would go to the right or the left. And it goes to the right or the left because that's what you want, not because it's what it wants. The boat can never say that it is good by itself. And that's the Bible's answer to the world's biggest question. How can I be right before God? You can only be right before God by believing what Jesus has done for you. All the things in you that make God happy are His gifts to you. And faith is saying, yes, I believe that is true. And knowing that even the ability to believe that it's true is God's gift to you. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O oh, dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into and make our souls pliable and submissive, to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. In chapter 8 of Job, Bildad has called Job to think rightly of God's justice and to humble himself. In chapters 9 and 10, Job replies by magnifying God's justice and renouncing his own righteousness. And our focus will be that second part of Job's response, the denial of personal saving righteousness. It's what our reformers called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The Reformation of the 16th century was a rediscovery of this doctrine. Martin Luther wasn't exaggerating when he called it the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Our subject will answer the question that we find in verse 2, which we also find in Job 25.4. How can a man be justified with God? Our outline is as follows. Number one, the fact. Number two, the reason. And number three, the manner. First of all, the fact. Now, there are two terms that we have to define, faith and justification. Unfortunately, we use words all the time that we don't define, and since they're never defined, they're misunderstood, misconstrued, or worse yet, misrepresented. Now, faith in the biblical sense means to trust in or to rely on. And I want you to think about the words faith and faithful. You can have faith in someone because he's faithful. And throughout the Bible, faith is presented to us as trust in the Word of God who cannot lie. God is faithful, therefore we can, should, must have faith in Him. Believing is biblically synonymous with having faith. Justification, as the Bible defines it, means declaring to be righteous. It's a declaration without regard to anything in the person himself. Justification is a sovereign act of God whereby He declares a sinner to be righteous in His sight. Now, of course, that raises some questions, and we hope to answer those as we go. 
Now, God has declared that justification, the, the state of being declared righteous in His sight, is obtained only by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.7, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.18, or 10.38, repeat the famous formula, the just shall live by faith. That is, a righteous life is obtained only by faith, by believing. The state of right standing before God is not attained by works. Self-sacrifice, penance, fasting, pilgrimage, almsgiving, flagellation, tears, or strict and rigid adherence to any moral code, even the law of God. It is obtained only by faith in Christ. The just shall live by faith. Faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus anything. Faith plus anything would mean that Christ's work is insufficient and that you need to make up what's lacking. Now, I want you to notice that the Bible is using legal terminology, and that is because Scripture represents God as dealing with the sinner in the character of a judge. All the time people say, only God can judge me. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's what you should be worried about. I'm willing to bet that most people don't think of God in the character of judge. And yet that is quite possibly the most common image Scripture uses. And therefore, Scripture uses forensic or judicial terms. In the forensic sense, justification is the opposite of condemnation. Romans 8, 33 and 34 reads... Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. Justification doesn't make the person under trial just or righteous. It pronounces him just. It frees him from all charges. Likewise, condemnation doesn't make the person under trial a sinner or unrighteous. It pronounces him justly exposed to the penalties of sin and unrighteousness. So note what our catechism is saying. Justification, that is right standing before God, is obtained by faith, by believing the scriptures. The catechism has just spent 14 weeks explaining the Apostles' Creed. These are the articles of the Creed are a summary of the doctrines of our Christian faith. Non-negotiable things Scripture teaches. Now, Scripture is the very Word of God. To doubt these articles is to doubt God. A person who quibbles with any article of the Christian faith is condemned for rejecting the testimony of the God who cannot lie. Now, God's people are declared to be righteous by no less than God Himself. It is God who justifies. Picture a courtroom. The judge stands up and declares the defendant acquitted of all charges. Case dismissed. No other charges can be brought. The highest authority in that room has spoken. And in a much more final sense, God, the judge of all mankind, has spoken. God has acquitted His elect. No one can bring a charge against them because a charge would consist of a violation of God's law and God is the judge. And sins aren't against the law as such anyway. They're against God. So if He acquits, no charge is possible. Now God doesn't deal in fiction. If the elect are declared just 
by the God who cannot lie, then there must be a mechanism, according to righteousness, by which they may rightly be pronounced just. And there is. And that brings us to our second point, the manner. Question 60 opens with the word how. How is it that I, as a sinner, am declared just in the sight of the God of infinite righteousness, holiness, and justice? Over and over in Scripture, we find phrases like, God will not clear the guilty. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. Job 34, 12, surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. So we have to start with this reality. God is just righteous, holy. Justice, righteousness, and holiness cannot, will not permit sin to go unpunished. All sin must be judged. God has promised to do so. A sinful man, of course, doesn't believe this. That's why people come up with so many excuses. Well, I don't believe that a good God would damn people to eternal hell, and yet the good God himself has promised that he will do that. God swears to not clear the guilty we should believe him because he doesn't lie. Now, we need to start with the basic fact then that this justification cannot be based on my own righteousness. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God puts no trust in his saints. They are saints. Yes, God calls them that. But their holiness isn't inherent. Their righteousness is not from themselves. Isaiah fifty-four seventeen. Their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Man has nothing to justify himself before God because all the obedience that we could ever render to God is due to him already. How can we acquit ourselves of any evil we've done by any good that we can do when all the good that we do we should have done anyway, whether or not we'd ever sinned? Job says, if I say I'm perfect, it shall prove me perverse. That statement there contains the gospel truth of justification by faith alone. And this truth echoes throughout Scripture. Romans 4.2, No man can be justified before God by the works of the law. Now, men have a lot of shifts and dodges against this doctrine. The most common one held by Romanists and their red-headed stepbrethren, the Arminians, is that faith is a saving work. And in their argument... God doesn't require us to earn salvation by the works of the law. Instead, He's made it a lot easier for us by merely requiring faith. Faith is the one act that we must do to merit salvation. Now, I hope you can see through that because it literally unsays what God has said. God declares no one is saved by works. Justification is by faith. And this argument says salvation is by faith. Yes, but faith is a work. And so at the end of the day, you're still saved by your own works. Now, your works don't consist of rigid obedience to the law, but nevertheless, it's still your works that justify you in the sight of God. And that's in direct contradiction to what God has explicitly declared. Now, our catechism shoots this down right out of the gate. I am only justified by true faith which question 21 defines as a knowledge and confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. 
Faith is a gift of God. God works faith in me by the preaching of the gospel. Romans 10 declares that in no uncertain terms. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Philippians 1.29, To you it has been granted, gifted, for Christ's sake, to believe on Him. If faith is a gift of God, it can't be my work whereby I merit salvation. QED. There was a coal porter, a traveling book salesman in the 1860s named Jonathan Cross, who happened to be at Gettysburg at the time of the famous battle. And he writes of an experience that he had there which perfectly illustrates what we're saying. He came to the battlefield the morning after the conflict to tend to the wounded. And he came upon a young man who was lying on his back covered with a blanket, and he had a tin cup of soup next to his head. So Reverend Cross says to him, Well, my good fellow, I see you have a nice cup of soup at your side. I hope it'll do you some good this morning. And the young man replied, It's no use to me, sir. I have no arms. They've both been shot off. That soldier's condition represents our state as sinners. In the conflict with sin and Satan, we have been mortally wounded. Christ has provided healing balm, but we're so disabled that we can't reach it. And worse yet, we have no disposition to accept it until the Holy Spirit makes us willing. The Spirit of God puts new life into the soul and feeds it with the bread of God which came down from heaven. And that is a biblically accurate presentation of the doctrine of salvation. Now, how on earth can you merit the feeding of your soul unto salvation when you don't have the arms to reach the food provided and you wouldn't reach for it if you did? And our condition as sinners is actually even worse. Sinners are not by nature merely injured or maimed. We're dead. Ephesians 2, 1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Corpses don't resuscitate themselves. Jesus likens regeneration to birth. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What baby ever cooperated in its own conception and birth? When we speak of someone being in labor, we ain't talking about the baby. The Bible uses those metaphors of birth and resurrection in order to cut off occasion to boast. Justification isn't by the works of the law, and faith isn't a work. Faith is a gift of God. And this faith, which is a gift of God, is a faith that holds for truth all the articles of our Christian religion, which are taught in the Bible and summarized in the Creed. That's why, in answer to the question, what doth it profit thee that thou believest all this? Question 59 answers that I am righteous in Christ before God. My believing in these things hasn't merited justification. It's proven that I already am justified. Justification precedes faith, hence faith cannot merit it. And that brings us to our final point, which is the reason. Now, if what we've said about faith wasn't enough, question 61 comes back with more force. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Answer, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. 
Faith isn't the reason that God justifies anyone. Faith doesn't merit. How can it? Faith is believing what God has said. Is there any credible reason to doubt anything that God says? No, of course not. So how can believing the most truthful being in existence earn anything? How can you earn anything by believing that the God who cannot lie is telling you the truth? It's ludicrous on the face of it. My faith doesn't deserve any reward because believing God is the very least I can do. And more importantly, this faith isn't mine anyway. It's a gift that I have received. Now, I want to step off topic for just a second to make a quick observation about the words that Scripture uses and the words that we often use. In the covenant of grace, man never accepts anything. He receives Scripture never uses the word accept. It always uses the word receive. The gift of salvation is received, not accepted. John 1, 11 to 13 says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him to them, He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The text doesn't say to those who accepted him. There's a world of difference between receiving and accepting. Accepting is active. Receiving is passive. You don't accept mail, you receive it. Accepting implies the possibility of rejecting. Receiving does not. You have no say in the matter. If someone drops a card in the mail for you, you're going to get that letter whether you like it or not. Your permission is neither sought nor required. John 1.13 tells us plainly that those who have received Jesus have done so not by heredity, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. God wills that they receive Christ, and that ends the discussion. Now, if faith is received, not accepted, then how on earth can it be meritorious? You didn't compete for it. Now, let's take our, our congregation as an example. Many of you are third or fourth generation members. What part did you play in great grandpa's faith or his membership in this church? None. You weren't even a, uh, a twinkle in your mother's eye. You were born and baptized. You didn't know any of this. You couldn't have played a part in it. You were never consulted to see whether or not you wanted great-grandpa or grandpa or dad to be a member of this church. No one asked you if you wanted to be born and trip. That isn't your choice. Yeah, sure, you can leave, but you can't change history. And therefore, our faith doesn't have any inherent worth that counts toward our justification. And so the question then becomes, well, what does? If God doesn't reckon my faith as deserving of salvation, what does he base it on? We've answered this question already in Job. God puts no trust in his saints. It's not them. It's not their righteousness. It's not their faith. It's the perfect righteousness of the living Redeemer. Now make no mistake. Faith is of great value. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He that believeth not shall be damned. Yet, however much value faith may have, it cannot be the ground of justification before God because, as we've already pointed out, in justification, faith is passive. It does not work. It receives. 
God's word emphatically tells us that the elect are saved not because of faith, but by or through faith. The ground upon which the sinner is justified before God the Father, who maintains the violated justice, righteousness of the Godhead and to whom the Son offered himself, is not faith, but only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. God does not justify us sinners for anything that he finds in us. God justifies his elect on account of what he finds in Christ. Now, as Reformed Christians, we believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Our nature is corrupt. We're conceived in sin and born in iniquity. But let's say that you're someone who doubts this doctrine. Okay, for the sake of argument, I'm going to let you put the commencement of sin wherever you want. When do men ordinarily, or when did you, more importantly, commit the first sin? At age 2, 5, 8, 11? It doesn't matter. It's too late for you to employ justification by works. If you concede sin at any point in the history of the soul, salvation by grace is the only option. Now, be honest now. Go back in your memory as far as you can go, and you will have to admit that you find sin as far back as you go. In fact, I'd wager that most of your memories are actually occasions of sin. Those times when you did something shameful or when you got caught in forbidden behavior. Now, if you want to insist in the face of Scripture and the creeds of the church on <clears throat> denying that sin runs back to Adam's apostasy, you still can't deny that the first years of your conscious memory were not years of pure holiness. Even on your own theory, you begin in sin. So you can't be justified by the law. If a man is to be saved by his own righteousness, that righteousness must start at the very beginning of his existence and go on without interruption. If he is to be saved by works, by good works, then there must never be a single instant in his entire life when he is not working such works. But we all know that's not the case. So it's impossible for a man to be justified by trusting in himself. The only option open is to trust another. That's why faith is not a saving work. You see, when man's attention is drawn or directed to the subject of salvation, his instinctive thought is that he must render to God something to offset his sins. Well, I've got to tip the scales in my favor, right? The, the thought of appropriating the works of another never occurs to him, or if it does, he doesn't like the idea. Look, at it, it's, it's, it's my soul that needs to be saved. I'm the one who should be doing something about it. There's no faith in another person. He's trusting in himself. <coughs> Excuse me. He's putting his works forward as a reason why God should forgive him. He believes that that's how his soul will be saved. And that's exactly what Paul is speaking about when he says the works of the law. And it's the exact opposite of faith. Faith never does anything self-reliant. Faith doesn't perform a service and then hold that out to God as something for him to receive and for which he must pay back wages in the form of salvation. Faith is engaged in the work and in the merit of another. 
The believing soul forsakes all of its own works and commits itself to what a third party has done for it in its stead. When a sinner sinner discovers that he owes satisfaction to God's justice for all of those sins that are past, if he adopts the method of works, he'll offer up his own acts to offset his disobedience as a reason why he should be forgiven. He may never say it in his prayers, but in his heart, he says, I'm striving to atone for the past by doing my duty in the future. My resolutions, prayers, charity, all this struggle to do better and to be better certainly ought to avail for my pardon. Or if he's been raised in the superstition of Romanism, he'll offer his penance, his fastings, his pilgrimages, his novenas as a satisfaction to justice and the reason why he should be forgiven. And for this cause, those who strive most to make themselves holy appear most unholy before God. Though I were righteous, says Job, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse." Imagining ourselves to be pure actually renders us the more impure. Joseph Carroll wrote, We are never so black before God as when we are whitest in our own eyes. In Luke 18, 12-14, we find the Pharisee, as Job, as Job puts it, washing himself in snow water. He tells us that he fasted, that he prayed, that he gave alms, and that he paid tithes. But the Lord threw the Pharisee in the ditch where he belonged, and the poor publican judged himself fit to be thrown into the ditch, but he went down to his house justified rather than the other. The mechanism of justification is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Impute, another word that we need to define, and it's another legal term. It means that something which properly belongs to one person is reckoned to the account of another. God imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. So in the gospel sense of the term, justification is God's gracious sentence in which with respect to Christ received by faith, he absolves the believer from sin and death and declares him just and righteous unto eternal life. Our catechism is concerned with what? Why, with our comfort. What is thy only comfort? This doctrine of free justification is the foundation and cornerstone of all of our comfort. How can I possibly come short of salvation when the righteousness of Jesus himself is what God is looking at when he looks at me? You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, God killed lambs and made clothes for them from the lambs' skins. When God looked at Adam and Eve, he saw innocent lambs because they were covered by the life and death of those sacrificial lambs. When God killed the lambs to cover their shameful nakedness, he was teaching them that they could only be justified if their place was taken by another who had no sin. Jesus did for us what Adam failed to do. Now, justification isn't a physical change in the person. It doesn't make the one who is unrighteous righteous in himself. 
Justification is a relative change as to his state. Justification is an act of God on us or toward us. Only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ can be my righteousness before God. And the only way I can receive that is by faith. It's by the exercise of faith that we understand what God has done in us. The work of the Holy Spirit is necessary in order to cut us off from everything in which we would seek our ground outside of Christ. We must be justified as sinners. We don't come before God's bar draped in promise and potential. We come as condemnable sinners in Adam. Romans 4, 5 declares this explicitly. God justifies the ungodly. Defense lawyers have often promised their clients that they'd be acquitted only to see them locked up for life. The assurances of an earthly advocate can be deceptive, but Christ, our heavenly advocate, never misleads us. Thou, O Lord, hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. Let us pray.